All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. This episode will be a little different from our previous episodes. Um, we've been talking to research experts and leading advocates and policymakers about the importance of housing affordability and its spillover impacts into all of these other sectors from education to health to hunger. But truly understanding all of the dimensions of this issue requires us to listen to those with lived experience as well. People who have experienced homelessness and housing instability. They've been directly impacted. And it's important to listen to what it did to their lives. So on this episode, we take a closer look at the issues of affordable housing through the stories of the people directly impacted. These stories were captured by our friends at the Where Will We Live campaign at the National Housing Trust and Enterprise Community Partners. Where Will We Live amplifies the voices of those with lived experience and arms them with the knowledge to take action to ensure affordable housing resources are protected and expanded. Uh, the, the good folks at this campaign have been traveling across the country collecting these stories. They are really great partners uh, and were kind enough to share the audio recordings of some of these stories. So we spent the past couple months collaborating on this podcast episode. So we're going to play for you the stories of seven individuals from across the country, each with their own experiences and set of circumstances. First, you're going to hear from Bill Marinelli, a veteran who currently lives in Maine. And as you listen to his story, pay attention to how housing instability and homelessness impacted his physical health and how his food budget and health improved upon securing stable housing. Well, I live at the Hazleton House. My name is Bill Marinelli. I had leased a house and uh, a developer had bought the property with the intent of tearing down the existing uh, house. It was a small one bedroom bungalow, which is perfect for me, and changing it into a three bedroom four bath deal, you know. So the lease I had to get out and um, 
So I became homeless because I couldn't afford another place. Yeah. And uh, I ended up in Maine, <laughs> of all places. Because I figured if I was homeless and living in my car, yeah. I, could, I could go to Vermont, I could go to New Hampshire. I've always gone to Maine mm -hmm. for the last 40 years. Yeah. So I, uh, I would come up here and be homeless here as well as Massachusetts. I was, you know, uh, just living in my car from day to day, thinking things were going to get better, but they never got better. Yeah. They just stayed status quo. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I'll never be the same from, from doing that. Yeah. My legs are different, you know, my, my, my body's different. I suffered mm -hmm. physically. Yeah. And on account of that, I wouldn't say I suffered mentally because I, I feel very comfortable now. Yeah. So it was a temporary condition mentally, mm -hmm. but physically I'll never be the same. My legs will never be the same. Yeah. Just living that, you know, sitting all the time, lying down. It was just, it was just tough. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do the things I wanted. What, what, what I found remarkable and made me feel like a human being was the help, you know? My friend, who's a, a retired firefighter, mm -hmm. coming down to Massachusetts and kidnapping me and saying, you've, you've had enough of this stuff. Mm -hmm. No veteran's gonna go homeless on my watch. Yeah. People like him, they, sometimes you can lose your self-worth, I think, yeah. when you're in that kind of situation. And, uh, and then you have people that, that, that kind of bring it back to you, you yeah. know, through the, the hand up with the funding. I'm able to live comfortably on a meager um, monthly stipend from Social Security, mm -hmm. which I work for, but it, at the same time, it's controlled by Congress, whether you get a cost of living increase. Mm -hmm. I'm able to eat well enough so that I can eat real food instead of the a lot of the packaged food. Mm -hmm. I don't eat packaged food anymore. When I was homeless, I had to go to a place like, I don't want to say the name, but a fast food place. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. I can, I can make, if I want a burger, I can make it from scratch yeah. and it's wholesome, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I am healthier. Yeah. I just feel very comfortable. I, like I said, if, if, if you live without a roof over your head and you're out in the elements, and even though you're in a car, you're still in the elements. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget, you know, uh, five below zero, wrapped up in trying to stay warm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the heat's always on here. <laughs> I can't tell you. Yeah. It, it makes a difference uh, mentally, you know. I just, I feel very comfortable. Yeah. And that wouldn't have happened without this help. So I'm hoping that... Um, smarter people or people with more common sense prevail to help people and they don't cut these programs because if, if they would increase here, it, all that does is just, it just makes it dip more difficult for someone like me. Because yeah. the first thing that's going to go is the food budget. Mm. Let's face it, you know, that's, that's what happens. Next, we have Brandy Wright from Cincinnati, Ohio. Housing was critical for her escaping an abusive relationship for her kids feeling safer. Her son doesn't act out as much. She got her first job after 10 years. She's working on a degree. Uh, she's even happy to be uh, paying taxes again, as she uh, laughs about uh, in her story. Uh, stable, affordable housing opened these doors for Brandy. My name is Brandy Bright. I live with Overdrive Housing. I live in their new building that's been up for three years. I cut the ribbon on it. It's a beastly place. It's really nice, I like it. When I found 
right housing. I was living in a shelter with my daughter. I was living, it was like a transitional place. I was in an abusive relationship and I had got out of it. And I was looking for housing and I came up here. Well, they were at the time, they were on East Clifton. And I came up there looking for housing and they helped me get housing. They helped me get the deposit and everything. Affordable housing is important it's because people's life changes. People have kids and if you lose your job, they'll, they'll work with you. You know what I mean? They'll help you subsidize your rent. If you don't have housing, how can you move on with life? You know what I mean? So I'm just blessed to be here and to have the opportunity. I can do more with my kids. I can take my kids out to places. Like I couldn't take my kids to Coney Island or anything like that. Now every two weeks we go on an adventure. Um, my kids are, I mean, they used to be scared, you know, cause you know, we had a car burning in front of our house and by the t almost right when the fire got to the engine, that's when the fire truck came, okay? Mm -hmm. It was scary. So I think my kids, they feel more safer and secure. Mm -hmm. You know, at night they can sleep cause you know, we lived around an area where they never went to sleep. I mean, it's, they do better. You know, my son doesn't act out as much either. You know, so I love it. They don't see like the dope boys standing outside. Mm -hmm. They have a better chance at life, you know, without seeing all the bad influences out front. So I'm just so grateful. Like, yeah. just everything's just been better for me and my family. Okay. I love my job. I work at the Buzz Bull. We make ice cream with nitrogen gas. We make it from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy it. It's a really great job. Um, I've been there for two months. It's my first job after 10 years. So it's, it feels really good to be out there and to actually support my family and just be out of society. I really enjoy paying taxes, everything. I, I just love it all. And um, right now I'm going to school to be a community health worker, a certified community health worker, and I'm going to sociology. This is my second year. After this quarter, I graduate, so I'm really excited about that. And I do internship, because I like working with people and everything. So that's where I'm at in my life, and I'm very happy, and I'm satisfied with it. I just feel affordable housing has changed my life. And without it, I don't know where me and my family would be. And it's, and it's helped me leave room to grow without focusing on housing. I'm able to go to college. I'm able to have a job and save money to be able to have a house one day and really, you know, and not have to be affordable housing and give somebody else a chance to have the opportunity. Next, we have Brusette Owe from Cincinnati. When the financial crisis unexpectedly hit, she lost her shop. Uh, she was ended up living in a terrible apartment that cost her $500 a month, and her Social Security check was $720 a month. So her rent was you know, about 70% of her Social Security check uh, for what she characterizes as a terrible, nasty apartment. By the time she paid the rent, utilities, and bought food, she had $20 or $30 left for the month. And finding affordable housing has brought normalcy to her life. I'm Brucette Owe, and I live, I think they call it Beasley something, but I don't know what the second word is, yep. over on Republic Street. Okay. And I've lived there three years. Okay. I lived on Elm Street, okay. and it was horrible. It was, I don't was that the old The old word for it is, he was a slumlord, mm -hmm. okay. It was a terrible, nasty apartment, and it cost me, by the time I left there, almost $500 a month. And at the time, I was, my Social Security check was $721. Wow. And because my rent, I mean my uh, utilities were included in my rent, I could only get $16 a month for food stamps. By the time I paid the rent, utilities, and bought food, 
I generally had about 20 or $30 left of the month. <laughs> it was horrible. I don't think even Elm Street would be accessible for me anymore because the prices have gone up so drastically. Where I live now, open market would probably be a thousand dollar a month apartment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I'd either be homeless or living in some really bad yeah. situation. Now, the way that I live is normal. I feel normal. I don't feel poverty-stricken or beaten down or, you know. Now I define normalcy. Um, if I want a pressure cooker, I can actually buy a pressure cooker. I don't have to wait for someone to get tired of theirs to give it to me or hunt up a yard sale where it may or may not work. That's one part of being normal. The other part is living in a place that I feel secure. There was no security of any kind over there. I saw a man killed outside my bedroom window, you know? Yeah. So I have a few bucks left at the end of the month instead of having to pinch pennies at the last week and not, not have enough for the whole month. Mm -hmm. I'd have to just say, hey, it's going to have to wait a week, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing isn't just for people who have been poor all of their lives. Mm -hmm. Things happen in a person's life where, for me, I owned an herb shop down on Court Street. When the financial crisis hit, I lost the shop. So, and I was living in the shop. I wasn't rich, but I had a place to live and I had some income. When that happened, I had nothing. So that's how I had to live on Elm Street for five years. <laughs> Next is Connie from Maryland. She talks about the basic math for someone on SSI or SSDI and how it's tough to cover the rent. She also really uh, captures a message that we advocates talk about all the time and that the research clearly shows, that if you invest in stable housing on the front end, Congress, it's much less expensive than dealing with the consequences later on, you know, the consequences of housing instability and homelessness. Uh, much better to deal with this up front rather than putting a Band-Aid on the problem after it happens. My name is Connie. I live at Mountain View Apartments in Cumberland, Maryland. There is a huge problem here with affordable housing uh, because we are one of the poorer counties in the state. Our wage rates are lower you know, than most other counties. So it's really hard, especially for single parents, for elderly people, disabled people, um, even though our rents are lower than what it may be in Gaithersburg or Washington, I mean, you're still looking at, on the average here, $600 a month rent. And for somebody, say, somebody who's on SSI, you know, who gets 700 and some a month, you know, if they have to pay $600 for an apartment, that's almost their income. Um, I'm fortunate because I get SSDI. Um, I had to go on disability about three years ago. I'm only 64. I'm fortunate that, that I get about 1250 a month, so I'm in a little better shape than most people. 
most of the jobs around here do not pay very much money. So for somebody to have to rent off a private landlord, you know, it's it's very expensive. They're they're putting at least at least 50%, probably more of their income into housing. And that that contributes a lot to the homeless problem. And there is a big push to get more affordable housing around here and we definitely need it because the the homeless now that I see are a lot of young people. Now for these young people trying to start out, especially in this county with with the wages, you know, if they're working restaurant or fast food or even some of the call centers or stuff, they're not making that great of money. Most of them minimum wage. I know like when Congress looks at things, they look at the bottom dollar, you know. So okay, they're saying, okay, we're putting a lot of money into affordable housing. But to me, putting the money into housing and giving people safe, decent places to live is a lot less expensive than dealing with uh, the consequences of people being homeless. And I mean, a lot of all of that ties into, you know, the, the financial stress and, you know, worrying where you're going to live or being out on the street. So I think that, I think that putting the money where it can do good, you know, instead of trying to band-aid and patch problems later on, you know, that are caused by people being homeless or not being able to afford to have decent places to live. You know, I mean, because it, it goes down, you know, to the kids, to the, you know, to everything. Next is Miranda Jordan from Davenport, Iowa. She's a single mom that doesn't have much support. Uh, she talks about her experience with job loss. She was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, uh, mental health challenges like depression and anxiety in an apartment she couldn't afford. Uh, the rent was too much for her, couldn't even afford shampoo. And access to affordable housing allowed her to, quote, breathe again, uh, to not have financial stress on top of everything else. She now has insurance, gas in her car, all of the essentials like toilet paper and shampoo and trash bags. My name is Miranda Jordan, and I live in Castlewood Apartments. We ended up at Castlewood because it was affordable. I don't have anyone to help me with my child. It's just me. His dad's around only every other weekend. He does what he can, but it's not. It's not enough. It's not twenty-four-seven like I, you know, like I do. It's just me. I don't have any family. I don't have any friends that have the time to help me um, get him from point A to point B. You know, I've I've lost two jobs being a single mom because not having a babysitter. That was my job secure. My job security was zero. You know, and I needed somewhere where I felt secure, which was income based that's that was secure for me yeah it's the only choice i had i don't have anywhere else to go when i first when i first moved into castlewood i was not doing well uh my mental health was not very good i was going through a breakup with the father of my child i didn't have a job when he left i had no money i was left in an apartment i couldn't afford and I was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia at the time. So I was being medicated for that. And I was trying to focus on myself and take care of 
whatever, everything that was going on with me. And then, you know, um, when I came here, when I finally got in here, it gave me an opportunity to breathe again, to not have that financial struggle on top of my mental health, my depression, my anxiety, everything else. It was just, it ultimately living here lets me breathe. It lets me, you know, breathe. <laughs> when I was, when I was working and living alone in a $700 apartment, I wasn't even making $700 a month. I, I only survived six months. I only survived six months on my own without his dad. Um, and it was just like half the rent here, half the rent there. And now, you know, and I couldn't afford insurance. I couldn't afford shampoo. I couldn't afford, I had to have family members help me. I couldn't be independent. I couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. And now that living in the income-based apartment, it guarantees that I have insurance. I have gas in my car. We do have the essentials, toilet paper, shampoo, trash bags. Yeah. If we, if I didn't have access to Castlewood, I would be in a friend's basement on a friend's couch, I'd be in my minivan, or I'd be a burden on another struggling member of society. It's already tough for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, I have a sister, Stephanie. She works 40, 50, sometimes 60 plus hours a week in a hot factory. And she's making minimum wage and can barely afford living herself. Then bring, if I didn't have access to Castlewood, if I had to come in and impose on her, she's working so hard already. There's nothing she can do besides provide me a place to, to sleep at night. But that's just not, that's not enough. That's not, you know, when you have a child trying to grow, develop, and learn, you know, they deserve their own space. Everybody deserves their own space. Next is Randy from Pennsylvania, also a single mom with three teenagers, all on the autism spectrum. She talks about the need for her kids to find stability, but how difficult that can be with unaffordable rents. She correctly talks about how there, there are available jobs out there, but many don't pay a living wage. And she rhetorically asks, how can you afford an apartment that is $1,100, $1,200 when you're making $7 an hour, maybe eight? And through that, Randy identifies the essential root of the nation's housing affordability crisis. My name is Randy Horst, and I live in Mountjoy at Sassafras Terrace. And I'm a single mom. I have three, uh, three teenagers, and they're actually all on the autism spectrum. My... uh, my children's father left when I was pregnant with our third child. He just split. And I was in a place where I could not stay there. It was my grandmother's house, and she was in a nursing home. And she'd been expected to come home and need help, which is why we were there. It turned out that she could not come home. So the house was put on the market, and it, it sold much quicker than I think any of us had expected. 
So I had to find a new place to live. And I was pregnant with two toddlers. And I wanted to find a place that I could live at for a long time because I didn't want to move around. I wanted my kids to go to a school. And I wanted to have a place that they would you know, remember growing up in, that that was where they lived from pretty much when they could remember. I grew up in Lancaster City. And um, that was OK. But I, I was not looking for city living, so I was very happy to find a place in a small town, because this is a small town. And I like that, I like that feel, the small town. So I, I just wanted some place where I didn't have to worry if my kids are playing outside. I wanted, I wanted some place decent. I think like everybody, everybody wants some place decent to raise their kids, whether you're, you're rich or poor. That's what I think everybody wants that. Yeah. It would be devastating to have uh, funding for affordable housing cut, not just for, for myself, but for people everywhere. There's a, <laughs> there's a big problem right now in this country with low-wage jobs, <laughs> which, you know, may or may not be related technically to the subject. But there are a lot of there, there are a lot of jobs right now available for people. That's true, but they're low-wage jobs. You know, right, right now the minimum wage is like what seven, seven and a quarter, seven. Seven, yeah, seven twenty-five. I made ten dollars an hour in nineteen ninety-two. I was I made ten dollars an hour, and that's three. That was like what twenty-five years ago, and that's only that's three dollars more an hour than what minimum wage is now. And I think, I think that's like so bad that that's what people are, are able to get away with paying people, and people can't live on that. I mean, you can't, you can't, how can you afford an apartment or a house that's $1,100, $1,200 a month when you're making $7 an hour or maybe eight? It's terrible. Um, people aren't going, they aren't going to have any place to live. And, and, and if, if you want people to work, then they have to be able to live. They have to be able to feed themselves and have transportation and have a roof over their head. And I don't think anybody deserves to be, to live in poverty if they work, like, uh, I think just because if you're working, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be living in poverty and have no place to live. I just think that's wrong. And affordable housing is, is very important. Next is Addison Martin from Charlottesville, Virginia. Addison is a teenager. He lives with his mother and five siblings. And he shares how having access to a stable home really impacted his childhood for the better. My name's Addison and I live in Friendship Court. I've lived in Friendship Court since I was seven, so about 11 years. I'm the oldest of six. Um, I'm my oldest brother. I have four younger brothers and one sister. Because I'm the oldest, I have always kind of had this really big weight on my shoulders. And then also only having one parent in the house mm -hmm. made it even harder. Before I lived in Friendship Court, we kind of moved back and forth between homeless shelters. Mm -hmm. And so this is the first place I've ever actually lived. Mm -hmm. Living in friendship court meant I knew I had a roof over my head mm -hmm. for a while, and still. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, it gave me a sense of security. Uh, as before that, I was just kind of back and forth, like I said, didn't know where I'd end up. If I were still in a situation where I didn't have like a set roof over my head, I probably wouldn't be in such a good mental place, mm -hmm. and family would probably be less close. Mm -hmm because of all the moving and such. Mm -hmm. And I probably wouldn't have any friends because I know with some kids it's hard to adjust somewhere new. And so when you first move somewhere, 
you're first trying to figure out who you're going to be friends with, who you're going to talk to, where you fit in. But if you're bouncing all over the place, don't really want to figure that out. And eventually, kids just kind of give up on it. Mm -hmm. So having friendship court means I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with the youth committee as part of the development. So we mostly go over ideas, talk about what could happen, give ideas for what might possibly happen. The youth group is a group of kids from the neighborhood who some of them are the children of the people who are in the adult committee. Mm -hmm. um, and it's mostly going over the ideas of what the adults do. <laughs> yeah. Getting the kids' opinion on mm -hmm. what happens to yeah. get more of an equal um, intake of voices. Friendship Court's location is convenient in the sense that if we need food or something, I can go to the downtown mall, walk to CVS, and buy milk if we need it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's also close to the pavilion, so if we want to go out like Fridays after 5, that's available close by, free music. Affordable housing is an important concept to me because I do know that there's a large chunk of people that are poor, and I do know how expensive an actual house can be. I mean, cars are expensive, food's expensive, look at gas prices. Mm -hmm. People should at least be able to afford a roof over their head and not view it as something to have to give up. Mm. I don't want, I don't like the idea of other people having to spend years uh, back and forth in homeless shelters like I had to do. Yeah. With affordable housing, that's a place you can live at with your family and know you're going to be there the next day. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere to put your groceries, it's somewhere to raise your kid, it's somewhere family memories, family memories happen. Well said by Addison. So you just heard the story of seven Americans. Uh, struggling to navigate the nation's housing affordability crisis, which is hitting every corner of this country. Their inability to cover skyrocketing rents, already the single largest expense for most families. It's spilled over into so many other areas of their lives, from health to hunger to education. You hear throughout these stories that, you know, at the most fundamental level, we all want the same things. Security and stability for ourselves and our families, the opportunity to pursue our own dreams and help the people we love fulfill their own dreams too. Safety and affordable housing opens those doors, and housing instability often shuts those doors. You heard glimpses into the lives of seven people today, but remember that there are 10 million households with extremely low incomes that are either homeless or paying rents that they cannot afford. 10 million of these stories could be told. We have the solutions, but what's missing is the political will. I want to thank again our friends at the Where Will We Live campaign uh, for helping us make this podcast. And to see more of their stories, uh, I would check out their website, www.nationalhousingtrust.org uh, backslash where-will-we-live. Uh, so www.nationalhousingtrust.org backslash where dash will dash we dash live <laughs> okay i think i got that right all right thanks everybody we'll talk next time